Um, we're going to go back to our study of Romans. I want to thank Stephen Watson for preaching last week while I was gone. I was at a family camp in North Dakota. North Dakota is amazing. Got to pick corn and eat it. That was awesome. I'd never done that before. Uh, I got to see my first tractor pull also. So that was also, I don't know if I'd say awesome, but it was pretty cool. It was interesting. Um, not something I'd ever seen before. So a lot of fun. Had a good time there preaching the gospel in a different context. Uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to cover some ground that Stephen kind of touched on last week, but I'm going to recover just two verses in verses 16 and 17, because this is like Paul's summary statement, his thesis statement for the whole book. So it's a really important part. We want to focus in on it, and it's going to introduce themes that we're going to hit as we move through Romans. Uh, so Romans 1, we're going to look at verses 16 through 17. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles under the chairs. And if you don't own your own Bible, take it home. We've got extras. We'd love for you to have your own copy. Um, you can turn to page 939 in those black Bibles that you see under the chairs. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of nightmare. I have these recurring nightmares, nightmares of embarrassment and shame. And I've heard, I've done a little research, I've heard that these are very common sorts of nightmares, nightmares of shame, nightmares of embarrassment. Um, one of them is I have this nightmare that I'm showing up for an athletic event and I'm not equipped, right? Like I don't have my uniform, I don't have my clothes, I don't have my pads, my cleats, whatever it is I might need for that game, for that sport. I don't know if you, have you, any of you ever had this kind of nightmare where you show up uh, and you don't have your stuff, right? Um, and it's been 25 years since I played a real sport in high school, right? So it's been a long time and I still have these nightmares, this feeling of being unequipped, unprepared, naked, embarrassed, exposed. Uh, I also have another recurring nightmare of shame that I think is more common, and this is the showing up for the test that you haven't studied for nightmare. Have you had this one before? Yeah, I see a lot more nods on that one. And it's been 14 years since I've been in real school, right, when I finished my seminary degree, and still I have this recurring nightmare. Well, I thought it would be better to talk about the vague general idea of shameful nightmares than to actually talk about shameful, embarrassing moments in my real life, right? You've all had your most embarrassing moments, and sometimes people like to share those in groups when you're getting to know each other. I'm not going to share those with you. You know why? Because I'm embarrassed, right? I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of those moments. Our text today, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so I'm going to share that. I'm not going to share what I am ashamed of, but I'm going to share what I'm not ashamed of and what Paul's not ashamed of, and it's here uh, called the gospel. We're calling it today the good news. The gospel can be translated directly, the good news. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. So we'll pick apart why. So let's look at verse 16 and verse 17. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All kinds of things in life that we're ashamed of, that we're embarrassed of. The gospel, Paul says, this is one thing we don't have to be embarrassed about. This is, this is hope for us. We're ashamed of being unequipped, unprepared, naked, but in the gospel we're clothed, we're equipped, we're taken care of. Everything's going to be okay. Let me pray for us and we'll unpack what Paul says kind of bit by bit, word by word. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for this good news. We pray that it would change us. We pray that you would teach us um, 
to not be ashamed, to be eager and excited about this good news and how it gives us hope. We pray that you would meet us here, that your spirit would help us to hear, to understand, and that you would transform us by this good news, that you would save us, that you would change us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, the word gospel, which is what it says in most English translations, is literally just good news. The Greek word is euangel, which is you, uh, like euphemism, you know, it's like a prefix we put on a lot of words, eu um, plus angel, you hear angel, right? Which basically just means message, message or messenger. So we think of um, angel as a messenger, but the word in different forms in Greek can also be the message itself. And so the word just literally is good message, good news. And it's a very common word in the ancient world. It was used constantly. It was used anytime someone would have a good announcement, glad tidings, good news, something great had happened that we would be happy about, right? That's good news. But the New Testament uses it in slightly a different way. But one of the ways that I think is really important is in the New Testament, they always put the article with it, right? You know what the article means in, in grammar? That means the, right? So when you say, I went to a university, you know, you're like, uh, it's just a university, some school I went to. But when you say, I went to the university, right, you're kind of elevating it, right? But there's this sense in which when we put the in front of something, we're saying it's, it's the ultimate version of this. It's like the most important manifestation of this. And so good news was a common word, but it's elevated in Christian theology because this is not just good news. This is the good news. This is ultimate good news. And because of that, Paul is not ashamed of it. He's not embarrassed by it. We have plenty of reasons to be ashamed of things and embarrassed of things in life, but Paul lays out reasons why he's not ashamed of this good news. And the first thing that he shows us is that it is saving power. The good news is saving power. It's saving power. That means, first of all, it saves us. That word means to heal or to make safe, to make okay, right? You're in danger. Now you're saved. You're not in danger anymore. You're sick. Now you're saved. You're, you're healed. You're well. So it can mean, it's a very broad word, and it can mean all kinds of different things in the ancient world, health, safety, well-being in general. In our context, because we've grown up in the West, with the teaching of the New Testament common in the Western world, we tend to think of salvation as a religious word. But it's a, it's a broad word that means just being okay, being healthy, being taken care of, being rescued from danger. It can, it can mean all kinds of broad things. Well, Paul is talking spiritually of being made healthy, well, and safe in a spiritual sense here. So he is talking in that specific way. But he's, again, using a common word of the day. And he says that the gospel is not just saving us, but it's the power to save us. It's where the power lies. There's a lot of different things that we would run to for power, but here he's saying, this is the thing that has power. So another way you could rephrase this is Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it works. I'm not ashamed of the good news because this is the good news that can actually save me. There's all kinds of other good news in our world, right? Not to diminish those good newses, if that's the right way to say it. Um, these other forms of good news, not to diminish those, right? Like if you get an announcement like, hey, I got a new job, that's good news. It, it really is. It's really good news. But is it the ultimate good news that's going to save you, right? Is it the ultimate power that's going to make everything okay in your life? Well, maybe not. It's just kind of a good news in your life. And, and Paul's saying this is the ultimate good news. I'm not ashamed of it because it is the good news that will really save you. So I want us to think through what are 
the things that our world tells us will save us? What are the things that our world tells us will make us okay? What are uh, their definitions of salvation? What are your definitions of salvation? And then what are your definitions of the power you need to get you to that place of salvation, right? So first of all, what's your definition of wellness and health and the good life? You might even just close your eyes for a minute. Uh, If you're new here, you probably don't want to close your eyes because you think someone's going to jump you or something, but it's generally a safe place. You can just close your eyes for a minute and think, what what does salvation look like? What does it mean for me to be well, safe, secure, okay? You You can open your eyes now. What's that vision that you have of everything being the way it's supposed to be? What does that look like for you? And then secondarily, how do you think you're going to get there? How do you think you're going to get there? That's the power that you're running to to achieve the salvation that you're fantasizing about, right? So everything being okay, that Calgon moment for you, whatever that is, it's a good 80s reference for those older folks in the crowd. Whatever that relaxed, ah, everything is going to be okay moment in your life, what's the power that you run to to get you there? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel, the good news of Jesus taking our sins, giving us his righteousness, that's it. That's the good news. That's the ultimate good news. That's going to save me. It's going to fix me. It's going to make everything okay. One of the common things that we see in our culture are advertisements for things that can save us. Here's an advertisement for an allergy pill, right? And so uh, usually in, in our area in the spring and the fall, people get the sniffles and they're sneezing because there's pollen in the air and your allergies are bugging you, right? I heard when we were in North Dakota, my friend commented on how weird it was that the weatherman reports on the pollen count. And I was like, oh, I just thought that's how everybody did it. You know, I thought that was normal, but we have a high pollen issue in this area, so we're very a bad allergy place to live, right? There's a lot of allergies. A lot of people have lots of problems with allergies in this place just because of the way the weather is, the way the the warm uh, seasons are. So here's a picture of a woman laying in a grassy field with wildflowers, blowing on a dandelion. Of course, she's a beautiful model and everything looks okay and she's happy. Where in, in reality, if one of us were to do that, we'd have like hives all over us and bugs and we'd be itching, you know what I mean? So, so this is kind of that picture, that heavenly vision of what if we could just be one with nature and feel good and not be bitten by ants, not get hives from the grass, not be sneezing our head off? What, what would that look like? Well, the power by which you achieve that kind of wellness is the magic pill, right? You take the magic pill, the allergy pill, and then you will achieve that kind of well-being, that kind of salvation. This is just one example. And again, I'm not hating on allergy pills. I take the magic pill myself. I just want to argue that it doesn't achieve full salvation, Right? It's kind of a little sort of salvation. I was sneezing my head off this morning. I took the allergy pill. It slowed down the sneezing. I'm feeling a little better. I can breathe a little more clearly. But it's not ultimate salvation. Throughout Romans, Paul's going to talk about this ultimate salvation. And then there's two ways I think we can divide it up. One is there's a present and future salvation. And the other is that there's an individual and a cosmic salvation. The Bible talks about these different lenses, right? So present salvation is when you believe in Jesus, you are made right, which means God no longer sees you as guilty, but God sees you as adopted child. He delights in you as he delights in Jesus himself. God loves you. So when we talk about justification, we mean God sees you as just, even though you've done bad things. Because you have the justice, the righteousness of Christ applied to your life, and you have your sin applied to Jesus on the cross. So Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, 
and Jesus gives you his righteousness. It's an exchange. And so we would say there's a present salvation. You're saved from guilt. You're saved from your sin in the moment you trust in Jesus. But there's also a future salvation, right? We look forward to this. We often call it glorification, which means we're going to be fully sanctified. We're going to be no longer sinning in our daily life. We're going to now be righteous and perfect, which I don't know about you, but that's hard to even imagine, right? I have those moments where I make a lot of good decisions within, you know, maybe two good decisions in one moment, and I think, wow, okay, maybe this will be what it's like, right? Where you have holy thoughts, where you care for other people, where the love of Christ just overwhelms you and you just want to be generous to others, and you're like, oh, that was awesome. Like, I wish I could be this way all the time. And we understand heaven, future salvation to be when that's it. We've, we've arrived. When we just don't, we don't sin anymore. He, he completes it. He finishes what he started. Here, here's a text in Romans that talks about this. Romans 5, 9 through 10. Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, so that's the now, present salvation, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's a coming wrath of God, kind of a final judgment. There's a day that's coming where all things are going to be reckoned. We should have a healthy fear of that, but if we're in Christ, we look forward to I'm going to be saved from that wrath, that future judgment, because I'm safe in Christ. So it's a present and future salvation. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled uh, to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So throughout the New Testament, there are these phrases like that, where it's like, totally now justified, future salvation. Totally now saved, but future salvation still to come, right? We're saved now in the sense that God hears our prayers. God loves us. We're complete in him. Sin's power over us has been broken. We can now listen to God and love God and obey God. We desire to do what's right. We're now in his family. We're adopted. We're reconciled to him. We're forgiven. That's a now present salvation. But there's a future salvation where it's all going to be done. There won't be any sin remaining any longer in our life. And then Paul also in Romans 8 talks about individual versus cosmic salvation. And what I mean by that uh, is there's a sense in which God is saving people, and there's a sense in which God is saving his creation, the cosmos, we like to say, right? Like the whole universe. The ancient Greeks struggled with this because they tended to think that matter itself was evil, like the gods were too good to mess around in the dirt, whereas the biblical view of God always presses against that and says, we have the God who stuck his hands in the mud and formed people out of it, right? He wasn't too good to play in the mud. He made a physical creation and said, it is good. And you know what's wrong with the physical, physical creation? It's us. It's our sin and rebellion. So all of the world is plunged into chaos and there's disaster and there's hurricanes and all this brokenness because of our sin and rebellion towards God. So in Romans 8, Paul ties the saving of souls, individual people, to the saving of the whole world. Not every single person is going to be saved. When I say world, I mean the physical creation is going to be restored. The story arc of the Bible is it starts out with paradise in the garden. It's going to be restored to paradise in the garden. That's where the story ends. We usually think of salvation like we go to heaven and we float around in the clouds and we're like care bears playing harps and stuff, right? But the Bible actually says it's going to be a restored creation. It's going to be a restored earth, Jesus kind of foreshadows this in his resurrection. He still eats barbecue with his disciples by the seashore, and he does physical things. 
he's different than his previous physical self, but he's physical. So we need to hold on to that as an important piece of Christian theology, that God says, God says stuff is good, and the world is good, and the creation is good, and he's going to restore the garden. He's going to restore the paradise that we started with, which I think is hope. Here, here's how he says it in Romans 8. It says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation, right, the creaking, groaning world we live in is, is longing for individual salvation to be revealed. So it's longing for souls to be revealed that are saved, that love Jesus. And as that happens, creation itself is set free. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So not just will we be saved, but like the dirt will be saved. The, the earth will be saved. And we don't fully understand how that process is going to take place, right? Generally, Christian theologians have a lot of disagreements over like years and times and scopes and maps and charts, but we all agree that this transformation is going to take place. It's like universal in Christian theology that there will be a bodily resurrection, that Jesus is going to come back, that Jesus wins, and that the creation is going to be restored. All Christians believe that. We disagree about timing. You know, our charts might be different, but we, we agree about those big things. Jesus wins. We're going to be saved, and the world's going to be restored. So Paul goes on in Romans 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Someday our bodies will be completely saved. I was saved in that present sense of restored in fellowship to God when I was 17 years old, so 25 years ago. My body, though, has gotten worse and worse over the last 25 years, right? There's still a part of me that's groaning and longing for my body to be saved, for the resurrection. And we look forward to our bodies being saved, and we look forward to the restoration of, of the universe, of the cosmos. It's going to be a new creation. You can read about this in Re- uh, Revelation 19, 20, and 21. It's not us flying up to heaven. It's heaven coming down to us. It's uh, the new Jerusalem coming down and restoring the earth. And so we look forward to that restoration of all things. So two questions, two application questions. What do you see as salvation? And what do you see as the power that's going to get you there? Are you investing your energy and your time in a magic pill? Young people, we often invest our energy in being cool, right? Or in just the right relationship, like someone that really gets us. And that doesn't work out, so then we invest it in the next relationship because they get us better than the last one. Then we try another one, right? And we, we tend to look for these magic pills that will save us as the power that will make all things right. What, what's the power that you're looking towards to save you, to make everything okay in your life. Paul says that power is actually found in the gospel. It's not just a good news, it is the good news. The next thing that Paul shows us as we go through these couple of verses is that this is for all, all people. It's a good news for all people, every kind of person. Um, a little children's song that I sang as a kid, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Have you ever heard that song before? Jesus loves the little children of the world. Yeah, it's a great song, and it's true. And and we need to constantly fight in our own life this slide that we meet Jesus and we recognize that we're saved because of his grace by trusting in him through faith. It's not anything that we did, it's what he did. 
But then something happens after a few years of following him where we start to think, yeah, I needed his grace, but I don't really need his grace that much now because I'm a pretty disciplined person and I've kind of got my stuff together. And there are those, you know, those low-life people over there. They don't have it figured out. They're kind of goofy. God loves me more than them because they're messed up and rebellious. Well, no, God, God loves all people. And, and faith, the whole concept of faith, destroys our ability to claim that we're better than other people. Because we're not saved by our us-ness. We're not saved by who we are, our tribe, our education, how we look, what color we are. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. He says it this way, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul would always start out with the Jews. He would go there. They were the context of people that were already reading and studying the prophecies about the Messiah. So they'd start there. Okay, this Messiah you've been studying, that you've been thinking about, it's Jesus. He's come. He's resurrected from the dead. So Paul would always start out first with the Jews, and then he would go to the non-Jews. But Paul's always saying in that action, going to Jews, going to non-Jews, he's always saying it's for everybody, the Jews and the non-Jews. It's for all kinds of people. It's for all kinds of people. Grabbed a picture here. Um, yeah, that's the song. We already talked about that. Red and yellow, black and white. Do you all remember those little action figure people with no arms and legs? I had those when I was a kid. I love those. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Here's how Paul says it. He says it uh, in Romans 1, 2, and 3 by building this case, and we're going to start with this next week, that the pagan non-Jewish people are engaged in this kind of incredible rebellion where they follow their own desires. And in following their own desires, they're in rebellion against God. And they don't worship God, but they worship the created things. And Paul says, yeah, that's, that's bad. And the religious Jewish people are listening to Paul make that case, and they're saying, yeah, Paul, that's right. Those rebellious people are bad. And then Paul, like, turns his guns on the religious people in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he says, and you religious Jews, you're just as bad. You're just as bad. He paints this picture of the most unreligious, rebellious kind of people in the ancient world, the kind of people that would just repulse the Jewish religious folk. And then he turns on the religious folk, and he says, you're just as bad. One of the ways he does that is he talks about um, judging. He says, you, religious man, you, Jewish person, you, I'll say, churchy person, right? When you judge, you show that you're just as bad. So here's a way to think about this from an application perspective. Who are the people you judge? I have to confess, I sometimes judge other people. Like, you know, not you people, sure, but like at Walmart or something. You know, you see other people. And you just, you, you look down your nose at it. You know, you're like, man, what's, what's up with that person, right? Like, what's wrong with them? You look down on them. And in those moments where you're judging people, that's a clue, that's an insight into your heart that you're saying, I'm better than that person. But the gospel says you're not better than that person. This argument where Paul goes through laying out how the rebellious people that are following their own heart, they're lost. And then he turns to the religious people and he says, you judgmental people, you're also lost. That hits this climax in Romans 3.23 where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can be saved apart from God's grace. Faith undoes our ability to say we're better than those other people. So God has always been about saving all kinds of people. And faith points to that. He says to everyone who believes, the Jew first and to the Greek. A few verses earlier, he says it's for the wise and it's for the foolish. In that same section, he says, it's for the Greek and it's for the barbarian. He's laying out, it's, it's for all people. It's for all kinds of people. 
trust. Trusting in God is how you get there. It's not, it's not by being the right kind of person. You become the right kind of person by trusting in God. So who are the people that you judge? Who are the people that you think, well, I mean, I know everybody needs grace, but that's, they need extra grace, right? How, do you, how does that process go in your mind? And that's a clue to where you're starting to think that you've achieved a special status with God because of what you've accomplished in your life, and you're looking down on the other people that haven't accomplished that. When Paul in Romans is going to say, no, we're all, we're all the same. We're all the same. We've all failed. So kind of the two ways to summarize that, that we miss the gospel. One is following our own heart. We'd call that non-religious rebellion, being really, really authentic, right? But you know in those like dark nights of the soul, if you're following that path of being yourself, and being authentic, you know eventually that it's a dead end. You know it doesn't actually save you. You need something outside of yourself. And then the other path of being religious, being more moral than the person next to you. You know the old joke of uh, how do you survive a bear attack? Have you ever heard this one? You just have to be faster than your friend, right? And that's kind of how us religious people live. We're just like, well, I mean, I know I'm not perfect. Who is? But I'm better than that guy, right? And we just try to stay a few moral steps ahead of the next person. But neither one of those ways will save us. We need God. We need his alien righteousness. We trust in him. Again, not because of who we are, not because we're authenticity person, and not because we're a religious person, but because we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And faith shows that God loves us in Christ if we trust him, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what kind of background you come from. The last thing that Paul shows us is that this good news is righteousness by faith. It's righteousness by faith. Um, Let me read the text again. It says, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So now he's really kind of doubling down on the idea of faith being the way that we get there. But he's also saying that the righteousness of God is revealed in this way. And the righteousness of God can be defined in some different ways. There's this um, rabbit trail been running down the last few years, this thing called the new perspective on Paul. What the new perspective on Paul has been trying to do is kind of call into question the traditional evangelical reformed, uh, going back to like Luther and Calvin, how some of these guys in the Reformation first started to think about salvation and faith in Christ. And I would say that after reading thousands of pages, there were a couple of helpful things as I studied this new perspective. Um, But I think, coming back to it, I I think Luther had a really huge insight that was really helpful. And so there's a couple of insights from this new perspective that wanted to disagree with Luther on some things that might have been helpful. But overall, I think Luther had a really good perspective. So Luther was this guy that started the Protestant Reformation. And when Luther started that, basically he said, I disagree with this medieval Catholicism that says you can be saved uh, by giving money to the church, basically, right? They called it indulgences, um, by being good enough, by working off your debts to God. There was a whole complex system in the medieval uh, Catholic system. And Luther says, I have a problem with that because of this scripture right here, Romans 1.17. And it's interesting because Luther for a long time hated it, right? He was in that system uh, and he hated this idea of the righteousness of God. Luther had always seen the righteousness of God as God's holiness that condemns us in our unrighteousness. And, and that is a valid biblical definition of the righteousness of God, right? God is righteous and holy, and we're not. We, we fall short of his perfect standard, which is a completely reasonable definition. But Luther started to see that Paul's saying something different here. 
that the righteousness of God doesn't remain other and separated from us, but in Christ, that righteousness comes to us. It comes in us. It clothes our shame. So here's how Luther said it. He said, I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. He's quoting that, the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning for me, Luther says. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate into heaven. So what Luther is admitting here, something that many of us are afraid to admit, is when we think about the holiness and the righteousness of God, we recoil. We hate it because it's just a sign that we're on the outside. It's just a reminder of our shame. It's just a reminder of how far we fall short of that righteousness. So we despise it. We don't want to think about it. We want to run the other way. And so again, one of the common ways we do that, the non-religious way, is we just run the other way. We're like, I don't want to have anything to do with this judging, condemning God that thinks he's too righteous for me. And then there's the religious way of dealing with it where we pretend we can actually achieve that righteousness on our own. What Luther discovered here is, is neither route works and that God, in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, gives us his righteousness, that it's gifted to us, that it's alien righteousness. Alien doesn't just mean creatures from outer space. Alien means anyone from the outside, anything that's foreign. So Luther talks about this alien righteousness being it's not a righteousness we create by working harder. It's not a righteousness we create by being more authentic. It's a righteousness that's gifted to us from God in the gospel. So the good news is that you and I can be righteous by faith. Not by creating it ourselves, but by receiving it with the open hands of faith. We're given Christ's righteousness. Uh, over the years, a lot of theologians like to talk about it as imputation, meaning it is reckoned to our account, right? It's like our debts are paid and then our bank account is filled with Christ's righteousness, which that, I think that banking metaphor is helpful and the scripture definitely uses that metaphor. But I think an even clearer and more commonly repeated metaphor in scripture is union. And literally, we are seen as in Christ. So Christ is perfect. And when God looks at you, he sees you by faith in Christ. So the exchange that happens on the cross is our sins are placed on the cross. They die with Christ. He rises to new life. We're given his righteous life. So it's this exchange, right? He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. But the most common way that's discussed in the New Testament is union. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So Paul says it here this way, for in it, the good news of who Christ is, what he's done for us, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's faith from the beginning to the end. It starts with faith, it ends with faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. My question for you is, what have you been trusting in besides Jesus and what he's accomplished? What have you been trusting in besides the good news of who God is and how he's revealed himself in the cross. I have a picture here of a runner who's just collapsed uh, at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Any of you ever run marathons or half marathons? Or That's good, not many of you. It's, it's terrible for your body. 
Um, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but a, a lot of times, it depends on your personality. This is how you think about exercise, right? For a lot of you, you're like, yeah, that's where exercise will get you. Collapse in a, in a heap. That guy just looks miserable. I was talking to some friends the other day. I run, but I run like not really enough to get any actual aerobic benefits from it. Um, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to rethink how I do exercising, but I don't really exercise for that feeling, right? I exercise to improve my health. Um, I want you to think about it in the spiritual life. Like, like why do you exercise spiritually? What, what are the works that you're doing spiritually? Are you doing them because you think they will accomplish you some sort of salvation, or are you doing them because the salvation's already been accomplished for you by Christ? Paul is going to challenge us to not work for our salvation, but to work because of our salvation, right? To receive the righteousness that God has for you by faith. And because you're settled and you're like, man, God's, God's cool with me now. I'm saved. I'm accepted. He loves me. Because of that, I actually want to listen to what he says. Before, I hated him. I didn't want to listen to what he says. But now I love him because he loved me first. And I want to now listen to what he says. So our exercise should grow out of this motivation that he's already accomplished the victory for us. Our works should grow out of what he's done for us already, not some sense that we can accomplish him accepting us and looking at us favorably. The only way he can look at us favorably is by what he's already done for us, by giving us Jesus. So the way this theme comes up later on in Romans is in Romans 3. Romans 3.26, he says this, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he is both just, scary, righteous, holy God that scares us because we don't measure up, but he's also justifier, the one that makes us righteous by his alien gift of righteousness in Christ. 3.27 says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, the law of faith, he says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So another way to say it is this, what do you boast in? What, what do you boast in? What are you proud of? Paul's saying, ultimately, we should be proud of, we should be boasting in what God has accomplished for us in the cross. We should be boasting and proud in Jesus. Like, he loves me. That's the good news. Are there other good news in life? Are there other lesser things that help us and move us along? Sure, but the good news, the ultimate help, this, the real salvation that we need is in Christ. And so we should boast, as Paul says, in the Lord. We should boast in the cross. We should boast in this, this good news. Not be ashamed of it, but want to share it, want to talk about it, want to center our lives around it, because it really is our only hope. So, so as we wrap up, I just want to finish by you thinking one more time about what are the things that embarrass you, Right? What are those recurring nightmares that you have? What are those fears? Maybe they're not nightmares. Maybe they're just things you're actively worrying about. What does it look like for you, for your life to be undone? What does it look like for you to be vulnerable, to be weak, to be naked, to be ashamed, to be broken? And I just want to encourage you that in that moment of of greatest weakness, in that moment of, of greatest brokenness, of greatest shame, that the gospel says that Christ comes to clothe you in his righteousness. Colossians 3 says we are hidden in Christ. 
We all, we all feel afraid. We all feel worried. We're all afraid we'll be found out. We, we have a perfect hiding place. It, it's in Christ. I want to invite you to come to him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond and worship together. God, thank you that you love us, and we know you love us because you sent us your son, Jesus. We thank you that we can be hidden in him, that we can be clothed in his righteousness, that our shame can be covered. So I pray that we would boast in that instead of boasting in all the other things we've been trying. Help us to boast in you. Help us to rest in you. And we pray that this truth would change us, that more and more we would become those people that that love others because we know you've loved us, that forgive those that have hurt us because we know you've forgiven us, that bear patiently with the difficult people in our life because you've borne patiently with us in the gospel. So we thank you for that good news you've given us in Jesus. Help us to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.